Welcome to the EMS on the Mountain podcast, a show for those interested in austere and wilderness medicine. This podcast provides insight into the unique aspects and challenges of bringing modern EMS into wilderness and austere environments. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of EMS on the Mountain. As usual, Sean and Mike here, and today we have a special guest, and uh, we'll let Mike introduce him with us today. So those of you that are following the world of Wilderness EMS, and hopefully those of you listening to this podcast, all four of you do, we've got a special guest today, David Pfeiffer, from the esteemed region, I'll call it the middle, the mid-Atlantic eastern region. He has been a staple in the community around highlighting the differences and promoting the fact that wilderness EMS and the act of going off into a wilderness environment far away from motorized mechanized vehicles is a different type of medicine. And he's been championing this for a while. And we're super grateful to have David on the podcast with. We're going to do something new here on the podcast today. Normally, as those of you that have listened, again, all three of you, we typically have a pretty structured format of what we discuss on the podcast. But today, we're going to take it a little bit by the, uh, by the chin, if you will and see where this conversation takes us. So David's been working on a lot of exciting things. He's recently kind of started a new position in his career, along with championing and been one of the key drivers in the new upcoming IBSC Wilderness Paramedic Certified. And we're kind of excited to hear about these things because Sean and I both plan on taking that test, I don't know, like the day it's available or shortly thereafter. So David, I'll let you introduce yourself and then uh, I'm going to start asking you questions, and I'm sure Sean prepared like 50 or 60 things to ask you because he's a much more prepared, squared away human than I. So, uh, David, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Well, like you said, I think if anybody recognizes my name, it's maybe because uh, I'm pretty passionate and active on social media and through a podcast on my own, the Remote Austere and Wilderness Medicine podcast that I host with um, Seth Collins Hawkins, listeners might know about wilderness EMS being a really distinct sort of specialty within the world of wilderness medicine. So wilderness medicine can be understood through a lot of different lenses, but I think wilderness EMS is something pretty specific and then certainly a niche of EMS. And so my day job is uh, I'm the director of the Center for Wilderness and Austere Medicine at Eastern Kentucky University and teach in the paramedic program here. So I teach traditional EMS classes, but also uh, a lot of wilderness and austere and uh, rescue medicine-oriented classes through that center. And then I think a lot of people in our community sort of have my fingers in a bunch of different projects and lots of different things. So um, I spent a lot of my time coordinating a team called Red Star, and that's the Red River Gorge Special Treatment Access and Rescue team here in Kentucky. So we have a a recreation area, a forest service property actually called the Red River Gorge, and uh, get about a million visitors a year, and people are always getting hurt and getting sick out there, just all sorts of hijinks that they're getting themselves into. So we respond to that area. Um, And then through that agency, I also help support the Kentucky State Police uh, rescue helicopter uh, as one of their paramedics. And then lately, I've also been really involved with developing this WPC exam with IBSC. So that's really designed to provide an international certification uh, that tests cognitive knowledge in wilderness EMS, uh, just like FPC does for flight medicine and TPC does for tactical medicine. And so that is soon to be launched into the world. Uh, we've been developing it for, I guess, about two years at this point. And so those are the highlights. People can uh, find me on LinkedIn and read all the rest, I guess. Right on. Well, I should probably mention, as I think most of the folks listening know, Sean and I uh, work together doing work in a uh, system in the mid-Atlantic. David runs in similar circles. In fact, I know Doc Collins. Uh, he, I've taught with him for high-angle programs yeah. along with Sean with the National Park Service. And I actually have t- uh, pretty close ties to a number of people out of the Linville Gorge area in North Carolina. Yeah. Eddie Cartaya is a good friend of mine. He runs a, a high-angle rescue program now. He's now a retired agent. And we've crossed paths in a number of times. David and I have spoken a couple of times before, but this is our first deep dive into... I'll consider it a passion or an alignment between all three of us. I think it is a, well, quite frankly, I thought it was a much smaller niche community than I think it is, given the number of responses I've seen on the Facebook page and the number of people who said, wow, yeah. that looks awesome. 
Yeah. So I think comparatively, it still is really a, a small community. And, you know, just think about all the people that we both know. And we could we could play that game of who you know, probably for longer than most people would think, but it's still only going to be about two to three minutes <laughs> until that game ends. <laughs> so it is a fairly small community. But it's interesting that you mentioned that it is actually bigger than most people think. And that's one of the things that has made this effort to develop the WPC credential successful. Because when the group that I was involved with at the time that we approached IBSC, approached IBSC, we were, I guess, nervous that IBSC would be skeptical about this need. And basically, the way that it got started is that uh, here in Kentucky, we have advanced practice paramedic scope. And we have subspecialties that you can get credentialed in to have that expanded scope and, and expanded practice opportunities. Basically, all of them have a IBSC exam except for wilderness. So you can become an advanced practice paramedic for TEMS, for flight, for community, so on and so forth. Uh, we didn't have any way of measuring the knowledge that the wilderness paramedic should have. So but your options are, okay, we could probably come up with some sort of homegrown Kentucky state test, but that's not what we want to do. We want to reflect independently validated, psychometrically validated, legally defensible knowledge. We want a third-party exam. So the work group that I lead here in Kentucky that kind of coordinates the wilderness paramedicine scope, we said, okay, let's approach IBC and just ask if this is something they'd be interested in. And when we first did that, we thought that it would be something that maybe we would have to convince them, first of all, was a need. Secondly, what even was the thing we were asking for? And kind of to our delight, you know, IBSC said, yeah, you know, some other people have asked us about this in the past. And with you guys asking for it as part of a state credentialing standard, now it seems like maybe this is something we might want to invest in. But let's do a survey and see how many people really want this, how many people are even engaged in this practice. I believe our- for that survey, I replied with, oh, hell yeah, I believe was. Yeah, exactly. So we started, yeah. we started pointing IBSC to some of the people that many of your listeners would probably know about, you know, Will Smith, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, out in Grand Teton, you yep. know, physician and a paramedic, right? Uh, ben Abo, you know, physician and a paramedic. So we started pointing them towards these people who were wilderness paramedics. And anyway, we very quickly found out this is something that a lot of people want around the world. And that there's actually a, you know, a real practice community that's doing this stuff. And, and one of the things we found that was interesting in that is that some people are doing really serious wilderness EMS every day, and they don't think of it as wilderness EMS because it's just their normal practice. So when we started talking to people, for example, in like Colorado Rockies, they were like, wilderness EMS? You mean EMS? Like yeah, work? Right? Tuesday. Like, yeah, my, like, this is just my what job. we do. Our, our, patients, our patients are up at altitude, and we got to climb mountains to get them, right? And then we found some other people who didn't realize that what they were doing had a name and had a community. So we connected with some people on some other continents who were like, this yeah. is amazing. I didn't realize that there was actually like a name for what we were doing. You know, we just felt like we were in these crazy situations, you know, really low resource, austere situations. And we're so glad to find this community. So that was a really interesting experience, but I think it did validate that. I think, I don't know how you guys feel, but I feel like there's almost kind of like a, a renaissance happening in wilderness EMS right now that looks a lot like the renaissance that occurred with Thames and sort of combat medicine, maybe about 10 to 12 years ago, where you started to see this proliferation of social media-based FOMED for you know, combat medicine, austere medicine, next generation combat medic, and you know, C really exploded to become something that almost every street provider knows about. I feel like we're sort of at the beginnings of something like that with wilderness EMS right now. No, I think that's good yeah, to hear because I, I need something else to keep me occupied for the next 10 years because my knees can only mm-hmm. take so much truck time and such. So it sounds great. Yeah, Mike can only take so much time up and down the mountain still. Yeah. Sean is older than me, but he's in much better shape. Let's just call it spade a spade. Yeah. Yeah. I tend to agree, you know, between Sean and I, I think we've got what, close to 40 years of experience in some sort of austere wilderness math problem. I'm unique in that I started my career in EMS by doing search and rescue first. So I didn't start EMS on a truck. I actually joined a search and rescue organization and then decided the, the medicine thing sounds kind of neat too. Like after you find them, you got to like help them. And that's what drove me to become an EMT. But I've never really done, I've never had an aspect of my life where I was an EMS provider in a street truck and then found out there was wilderness. Like I started in the wilderness and then kind of migrated into, well, I want more contacts or I became an advanced provider and I needed more, you need more stick time. You need more, whatever. You can only spend so much time hanging out in the woods where people are hiking, hoping that you're going to get a patient where you're going to get contacts. 
But then after a few years of experience, I realized that it's so extremely different, right? What's the first rule of thumb in the street in general, right? You're either going to come into the house and you're going to do your basic assessment and then do your, your initial interventions or whatever it is. You get them on the cot, you get in the truck, you do whatever else you need, right? Hey, I need a line. I need to do this, whatever else. And you have this nice big like mini house you brought with you, right? You don't think about things like, oh, I, you know, I, I can't just set down the catheter there. That's dirt on a trail and I can't stick that in the guy's arm. I can't accidentally drop a vial or just set things down anywhere because it turns out this is a dirty environment and it made me start practicing differently. And I think I'm, I'm kind of unique in that that's always been the world I've known, but there's a, there were so many more people out there that I didn't know existed that were practicing the same sort of environments that this is kind of exciting for me. And I'm, I'm kind of hoping it becomes a whole, well, I think it is picking up steam and I think you're right. It's becoming a whole subspecialty that I think is really going to take off. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. And I think you're starting to see more career opportunities. There's still not a lot, a lot of them, but, but you're starting to see more of them. And especially as we develop the WPC and more people get the WPC, I think that you will start to see a few more opportunities come along kind of the system that recognizing that this really is a specialty, just like we're seeing the growth of community paramedicine and we're starting to witness the continued professionalization of tactical EMS. I think you're going to start to see the same thing with global experiments. Now, I didn't know this, but this grew out of a need that Tennessee had. Like, it Kentucky. was something that, I'm sorry, Kentucky. I did not know. I, I thought it was kind of groundswell from providers, but it was actually a, a state-driven thing to start the conversation. Yeah. So, so uh, I think it was both. I mean, I don't want to take credit for the genesis of the, of the, of the idea. Cause I, I think when we connected with IBSC, you know, they told us other people had expressed interest in this from different corners. What I do feel comfortable saying is that when we reached out to them, I think they realized that this isn't just like a few people here and there. Now, you know, we have a state Kentucky that really is looking to regulate wilderness EMS really for the first time, kind of first among the states to do it. So there are some states that have wilderness protocols. You know, Maryland comes to mind. They have a kind of a wilderness medicine annex that I think Michael Millen uh, developed uh, in, uh, over in Maryland. Vermont, New Hampshire, you know, have some things like that. So in places where there is a lot of care being done in the wilderness, there are some states that have some like wilderness protocols that you can use. But Kentucky is the first state where being a wilderness paramedic is its own scope of practice. It's its own thing. So people who are wilderness paramedics in Kentucky are not just paramedics who get access to some special protocols. It's its own scope defined in our state statute. It literally is EMR, EMT, AMT, paramedic, advanced practice paramedic, subspecialty in blah, 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 including wilderness. So it's, you know, it's right there in state laws being like a thing. And so that's what was unique about what we were trying to do. And so when that's what really, I think, convinced IBSC that this was worth exploring on seriously. So that's what motivated them to go ahead and spend the money to do surveying, to get some groups together in some different cities uh, kind of around the country to see, is this, is this real? You know? And so that's, that's the part that I'm proud of is that we sort of had the audacity in Kentucky here to reach out to IBSC and say, will you build us a test so that we can regulate this? And then that was simultaneous with what you said, kind of a groundswell. Yeah. When they, Kind of put out the feelers and said, "Hey, Kentucky's asking for this. Does anybody else really want this?" The response was overwhelming, and people said, "Yeah, we really do." And I think that's important to to talk about because when IBSC has started to market this, you see the the haters in the Facebook comments and the LinkedIn comments who are like, "Well, there goes IBSC again, just trying to charge us more money for another certification." It's like, no, 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 no. IBSC isn't forcing this on anybody. Our community yeah. asked for. And IBSC is basically kind enough to invest considerable resources in developing a legitimate exam. Yeah, you're going to have to pay for it because it costs a lot of money to develop a good exam. But it's not like IBSC is trying to hoodwink us. Our community said, we want a professional certification that is independently validated. And that's what this is about. Yeah, no, and I think that's one of the best things about the IBSC piece is it's an independent party. And I, I do, I love seeing some of the comments about them, the registry and other folks. It's like, oh, it's just a money-making scam. All they want to do is make money. And it's just, it's like people, seriously, then don't do it. Yeah. You know, it's I'll, like, if you want to get a legitimate certification that at this point, WPC, I think, well, you know, it's going to hit that international mark. And it's like, you can go to other countries and be like, oh, you're WPC. That's yeah, cool. Right. And they know what that'll mean. And it'll be worth just, it. I don't even understand that criticism. It's like, it's like if um, like a new restaurant opened and they put out their sandwich board that said, here's our new coffee shop. 
250 for a small, four bucks for a medium. And somebody walked past that and goes, freaking coffee shops just trying to make a buck off us. So, I know, right? Yeah, yeah that's kind of, it's a business. <laughs> and all they want to do is like try to pay their own employees and things. Yeah, right. It's a business. They're providing a service. You don't have to get it. So, I mean, I kind of understand when people criticize registry because in 47 states, it's legally required. So you really don't have a choice. But even still, nobody's making you become an EMS provider. So, right. well, in a lot of those states, though, it's, it's only required for initial certification right. for most of right. them, right? But so this like, is purely but, elective. Now, in Kentucky, we are yeah. choosing to use it as a regulatory tool, right? So to become yeah. a wilderness paramedic in the future in Kentucky, you will have to take you will have to obtain the WPC credential. But again, it is not required to become an advanced practice wilderness paramedic in Kentucky. It's just that if you choose to meet that standard, you get access to much more expanded scope and some different kinds of protocols and things like that. So yeah, I think those criticisms are kind of silly, but but the, the one that's just false is that this is something nobody wants. This is something that there's been a huge, you know, grassroots uh, positive response to. Yeah. No, I would I think globally you'll see more people end up getting this than probably FPC and CCPC certs. Mm, interesting. I just That's if you look bold. at Europe and well, I mean if you think about it, right? A lot of European countries, they require currently like either FPC or CCPC for their wilderness responders because that's the closest they can get. Mm-hmm. Right? But if you establish a WPC and you get at the same level, especially across Europe, right? That continent has more wilderness providers than all of the United States, right? I mean, it's we're a very large country, but they've got just tons more. Yeah, so we have a lot of interest from Europe in a lot of the air medical operations that provide heavy search and rescue response. So Air Zermatt comes to mind, and we have representation from Air Zermatt on the uh, you know, the WPC work group. And there's some air medical operations in South Africa that also are involved. That uh, same thing is true. And that's yeah, I could go on and on listing all the um, different stakeholders in the group and everything, but. Yeah, some of the people who are doing a lot of mountain rescue, helicopter-based mountain rescue, are very excited about this over there. Yeah. So if you can, David, give us a little, I don't want to call it a teaser, but help me understand the difference, right? So the FPC and the CCPC are two certifications that are often talked about as being similar. I don't think they're as similar as people think they are. When you actually look at the schedule of questions, there's actually quite a bit of difference. But there is some overlap. Is there going to be overlap in the same space for this exam? Or is this going to be more so like the TEMS versus the FPC, where it's really a completely different knowledge base, completely different skill set, completely different yeah, baseline? So I, think there, I think there's going to be a little bit of overlap, but I don't think there's going to be as much overlap as some people might fear. I think that's another one of the, maybe one of the critiques is people are saying like, you know, what's the point of another certification? Just go get your FPC and you can be in the woods, right? So there's this misunderstanding or... Uh, lack of uh, of understanding that that this is going to be you know critical care kind of in the woods. Now there is certainly elements that overlap, and I'll give you a, a couple of examples. Helicopter operations are a facet of wilderness EMS that I think is almost universal, and I can say that I think with some authority because when we did the practice analysis for the WPC exam, and we had all these people in the room from all these different facets of wilderness EMS, all the different climates and climbs and continents, everybody said, yeah, we do stuff with helicopters. Okay, so we decide, then we go through and we start asking questions about, okay, what exactly do we think a wilderness paramedic needs to know about helicopters? So some of the things about like helicopter safety, crew resource management, things of that nature around safe interface with helicopters, getting conveyed on helicopters into an area where you're going to be doing treatment or where you're going to be providing op med for a SAR team. Yeah, there's going to be some overlap there with the FPC exam, which does ask questions about similar topic areas. And that's just one example. There are aspects to the WPC practice analysis that it turns out when we did that, there are some things that some people might consider to be critical care. It probably kind of depends on your worldview about what is basic paramedicine versus what is maybe a more advanced level of paramedicine. But some examples that come to mind would be use of vasoactive medications, blood products, things where we're talking about really seriously injured patients, and we're bringing an advanced capability to them in the wilderness. That's really the point of wilderness CMS. So there's probably going to be a little bit of overlap there in terms of knowledge of pathophysiology, you know, um, but it turns out that people are not they, different know. when they get hurt in the woods versus like yeah, hurt on the street. It turns, street. Out, for like, the it turns out the human part, body like pretty much works the same way. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Medicine is medicine for the most part. Of course, we have to understand the ramifications of the natural environment that we're working in that's going to be the substantial driver of our treatment decisions. That's really what wilderness EMS is in a nutshell, right? That's the difference between treating a patient in the Red River Gorge versus treating one uh, on pavement. It's not that the medicine is fundamentally different. It's that the environment is different, and we have to consider all of those factors. So what's not going to be on the WPC exams, like, there's not going to be anything about like impellas and balloon pumps and fetal monitoring <laughs> and brain bolts and stuff like that, right? So there's a ton of stuff that is definitely germane to FPC and CCPC that is not germane whatsoever to WPC. But there is some overlap because what we're talking about here is not, can I improvise a splint out of a sleeping pad and a hiking pole? We're talking about, can I safely sedate somebody in the wilderness and do I understand the ramifications of doing that in a heavily austere environment where it's probably just me and that's the EMS system for hours or days is me and what's in my backpack. So, you know, this is not a glorified woofer exam or a wilderness <laughs> upgrade exam. Uh, this is really, you know, do I have a real mastery uh, of medicine in the wilderness? God bless you, sir. You have said all the right keywords to endear me forever. That is my yeah. largest complaint about most of those courses is, hey, look, here's sticks. We can make you a wilderness provider now. And people just don't comprehend it. It's yeah. not improvising sticks and twigs. It's knowing your medicine in the environment you're operating in. And well, you know, I just, I want to be, I don't want people to misunderstand. I mean, that skill set of being able to improvise is crucial, right? So those courses, and I've taken many of them from many of the leading providers in this space, they're good courses. You know, they, they teach really good courses. And, and I don't want to like name any companies, but I think everybody kind of knows who the big players are yeah. in the wilderness medicine space. They're good curricula that builds a lot of confidence. It turns on a lot of light bulbs from people who are coming over from the traditional environment. And you should know how to improvise a splint out of a sleeping pad and, and a hiking pole for those times when you have depleted your resources, your actual medical devices, let's say, right? When you've depleted those things, because you can only carry in what you can carry in your back, or when you're off duty, or when you're just in any sort of resource limited environment, it's really crucial to have a good understanding of how to do that stuff. No, no shade thrown on those curricula at all. Oh, yeah. No, no. Most of those curricula are pretty much scope agnostic. So they're not really getting into specifically what a paramedic might do who is operating on duty under medical direction at kind of their full scope. So they're scope agnostic courses. And then they don't necessarily speak to any particular organized delivery of healthcare, right? They're, they yeah. very heavily emphasize that concept of improv. And a lot of the scenarios in the course are you're hiking when you come across that does happen to me sometimes when I'm hiking recreationally in an area where there's a million people who visit a year. But what I'm about and what WPC about is you are dispatched to. Yes. And you have an obligation now to operate at a certain standard of care and basically have access to the full gamut of paramedic treatments and responsibilities that come along with all those treatments. That's what the WPC is about. Excellent. Yeah, no, that's great news. And that's, that's exactly in line with, with my general, Mike and I's general thought. Like your, all of your comments right there were come basically right out of, we, we just did a, an episode about improvisation. And while that is not the only thing that makes a wellness provider, but do you need to know how to do those things? Absolutely. Yeah. Because like you said, I've only got a couple of SAM splints and depending on what the situation was, maybe I took something else and then I need something else. Well, if I didn't carry it, I don't have it. So then you have to be able to make those things. But it also gets into that whole kind of follow philosophical constructs of wilderness medicine. A lot of people look at wilderness medicine or make the argument that wilderness medicine can be disaster medicine. It can be humanitarian medicine. There's all kinds of ways of looking at it. And to a large extent, I think that that's all perfectly valid. But sometimes what gets like lost in the sauce is like, okay, but what I'm talking about is, again, I'm a paramedic assigned to cover the Red River Gorge or some other gorge or whatever the wilderness area we're talking about is. So I can't excuse failing to prepare. Yeah. Right. So, yes. So exactly. I need, yeah. I need to, it's, it's good to have those skill sets, but when I respond as a paramedic with Red Star, I have a duty to act 
and I'm not just doing it uh, as a good Samaritan. So if I am cobbling together too many improvised kinds of things, the question kind of comes up, if you keep seeing this particular injury in your duty area, why aren't you preparing for it with appropriate devices and appropriate treatments and appropriate protocols? And I think that's a really key difference. So yeah, wilderness medicine is like the, is kind of a large, very large community that attracts a lot of people. I think wilderness EMS is something much more specific. Oh yeah, no, agree hundred percent. I am, I mean, I don't know how else to say this. I'm wicked excited about the fact that that aligns directly with quite frankly, the foundational reason we started doing this podcast, right? It was, it was, there was a, it felt like a lack of understanding that, well, to quote myself from a previous episode, right? The ability to play with sticks and stones is awesome. But if you didn't bring the proper equipment, are you really a medical provider, right? Like yeah, so, you have to have the tools of the trade if you're you going to trade in the, in the skill, right? Yeah. So that's why Seth, uh, Seth Collins Hawkins wrote Wilderness EMS was yeah. to really underscore this idea that what we're talking about here is the organized pre-planned delivery of healthcare in a systematic way in the wilderness. So improv is super important. You got to know how to do that. You sort of have to know how to do it on ambulance as well. I mean, how many times have we as providers pulled out the inline neb and the CPAP mask and that particular <laughs> month, the supply officer had to order a different set of one thing or the other, and they don't fit together. And we're yep. taping it together with occlusive dressings and, and, and whatever else to make it all you know airtight or whatever. So any good medical provider needs to be able to think on their feet and figure out how to adapt things. They need to understand the principles of how things work so they can adapt it so that it continues to be an effective therapy, blah, blah, blah. But there's, again, it kind of comes back to that. Like if you were working for an agency and that was something you had to do every call every day, pretty soon you'd go to the supply officer and be like, yeah, what the hell, man? Like, get some stuff that fits together. Like, how, you know, we got to do this like every day. Like, why are we not prepared for the things that we're expected to do? Nobody's expecting you to have to take care of anybody when you're on a recreational hike. That's a choice you make as a good Samaritan, basically. But when you have a duty to respond somewhere, you need to really understand all the ins and outs and you need to be prepared. And that is equipment selection. That's physical fitness. That is a certain level of technical rescue capability appropriate to the area that you work in. Not everybody's working in high angle environments. And so one of the things that we try to do in developing the WPC is reflect that as well. That's what are the universal themes? What are the things that are true in any wellness environment? So this is also not an exam that is going to necessarily be about like dive medicine, right? It's not like, it's not like a series of modules or, or, or knowledge based on like a series of modules because people are practicing this in all sorts of different environments. So should a professional wilderness paramedic have some familiarity with some marine medicine stuff, some aquatic medicine stuff, some dive medicine? Like, yes, right? Some familiarity. But there are people who go their entire careers and they're never going to get anywhere near the ocean. And so how reasonable is it to, how many of those kinds of questions should be on the exam versus principles of applying medicine in whatever kind of low resource or austere environment you're in, whether you're on a boat you know, in the middle of the ocean supporting a dive trip or some sort of research trip or whether you're up on a mountain. So yes, there are going to be some questions that sort of survey the different wilderness environments that some can find themselves in, but, but it's really designed to be something that tests the knowledge that any wilderness professional should have, just like FPC tests anybody who's flying in an aircraft uh, and uh, Thames is, you know, the uh, TPC test is testing anybody who's like kind of in the stack. So that's what it's about. So question. So with WPC, how do you think it relates to something like the Wellness Medical Society's fellow program? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a FOM, a fellow in the Academy of Wellness Medicine. I think it's a different thing. So the, the FOM is, is also sort of scope agnostic. FOM is available to any yep. healthcare professional who's a member of the Wellness Medical Society. There is the ability within FOM to to a certain extent, sort of steer it into whatever area you're interested in by taking more of these kinds of courses and a, yep. a little less of these kinds. Okay, so that FOM is, is again, sort of role agnostic, sort of scope agnostic. And really what FOM is, in my opinion, is, is a credential that sort of proves that you have a broad base familiarity with wilderness medicine at the professional level, but still very broad. Right. So, you know, it's really more about understanding 
the culture and history of wilderness medicine a little bit. It's about understanding all of those different practice environments and just sort of gaining that recognition that dive medicine is a part of wilderness medicine. So is altitude. So is travel medicine. You know, so tick-borne illnesses. It's a, it's a very, 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 very broad survey. And that's why it often takes people years to complete. So it took me about three years to complete my FOM because it really is like the closest thing there is to board certification in general wilderness medicine. WPC is an exam specifically testing the paramedic scope of practice in the organized healthcare system. That's what it is. So FOM is not necessarily about being a part of a healthcare system. There's aspects of FOM that are about that. But WPC is very, very specifically geared towards a paramedic who's operating on duty under medical direction in a wellness environment. Now, there is some discussion uh, going on in the IBSC group about should WPC be open to other kinds of ALS providers? Maybe the P should actually be like a wilderness provider certified or wilderness practitioner certified. Other people besides paramedics can take the W, uh, the, I'm sorry, the FPC exam. So other kinds of EMS providers can go ahead and get that, that FPC post-nominal, and that's not necessarily widely known by people. So there's, there is some discussion about maybe as this gains recognition and as it evolves, maybe it's not just a paramedic cert, but, but it's always going to be, I think the vision for this is it's always going to be about the ALS provider working under that full scope duty to act. And that's a very specific kind of a credential that is much more focused than fall. Right. No, totally agree. And yeah, just the comments I've seen social media wise, there would be the WPC and then something like the TPCs. There's also the TRC tactical yep. responder. So they could reduce that down to another level. Of yeah, there's just some there's some discussion about that as well. Like that. Uh, that is uh, that is conversation is a little bit tricky sometimes because I think there are some in the wilderness medical medical community who feel that some of the knowledge that might be tested from a woofer or from a WEMT might be sort of proprietary, that some of the companies out there that teach these curricula, they pioneered those certifications. According to most sources, Solo really kind of gave birth to the the woofer uh, credential. And so uh, there's some strong feelings out there that maybe we should kind of let those companies continue to teach what they have developed and let them sort of focus on that market of people who want that level of training. So there's probably some, uh, there's some validity to that. I mean, I sort of have mixed feelings about that, but I sort of well, see the, the concern there about essentially them saying, nobody's asking for the national registry of wilderness medicine. Like nobody's asking for that. Maybe some people are asking for WPC, but are people really asking for, for that? Again, I have my own feelings about some of those points, but that's uh, what makes that that thing a little bit trickier. I think if you went with you know a WRC, I think it still st- sticks with that same theme of EMT or above, and you are an EMS provider operating as an EMS provider, not a lay responder. You're not out day hiking with the family and you come across somebody. It's keeping it in the same vein of the professional responder. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, you could keep all the woofers and the WFA and everything else just as they are for everybody else that seeks and utilizes those certifications. Yeah. Sean, I know you had some other questions. Uh, I'm going to let you jump in with those. Otherwise, I'm going to keep, I mean, I could make this a two-hour podcast, but I feel like we should be judicious with time and we try to keep it around an hour. David, do you have any, um, is there a solidified time frame yet? Like, are we going to see this by the end of the year? Is this something that's coming early next year? Does anybody know yet? Yeah, so it actually, the beta test should be ready to roll out within a couple of months of this podcast being released. So okay. I think Great. people can imagine that that is probably a don't necessarily hold us to that exact time frame because right. we want to make sure that we roll out a good project or a good product. But yeah, that's the goal. So a lot of the questions for the beta test, like almost all of the questions for the beta test have already been sort of submitted and are being validated right now by IBSC. And that's the plan is to try to have a beta test ready definitely before the end of uh, 2022. But ideally, yeah, within the next few weeks, pretty exciting stuff. So uh, I know you can't reveal a whole lot, but if somebody were to say be studying for this exam and this is pops up on social media everywhere, what are some of those things I heard, you know, Dr. Hawkins book, Wilderness EMS would be a good resource. What are some other things that folks should be looking at if they're looking for study materials, trying to prepare themselves? Yeah. So, so resources that 
I would probably be looking at. And and um, there is going to be none of this stuff that you're asking me about, I think is really like secret. I mean, just like for FPC, there's prep courses, you know, you can go yeah, out there. They're all and, over the place. Yeah, they're all over. And there's sort of the recommended text that those different companies point you towards. So certainly I'd be looking at Wilderness CMS. I'd be looking at probably like the CoROM field guide. I'd be looking at uh, the latest edition of Hourbox Wilderness Medicine because you do still have to have a really good grip on like the concepts of wilderness mess and the concepts of being out there in, in austere care, uh, austere environments and providing care. There's definitely going to be some aspects, uh, I think, on the exam that, that test a, a, a familiarity with what used to be called prolonged field care, PFC. Yep. Uh, now, I think, I think the vernacular there has started to change to prolonged casualty care. But, you know, that many of your listeners are probably familiar with, with PFC. And so, you know, a lot of those standards come out of the DOD joint trauma system and are freely available on the JTS website. So those are where I'd probably be looking if I was going to start to prepare for this. But just like other testing organizations, there is definitely the, there's a little bit more, you know, the concept of a beta test, right, is that you're going to see, like, did we hit the mark on this? Are we right. asking people questions that are things that people should know or are we asking questions that are kind of crazy you know and so mm, i think right. after the beta test results come back then we can start to narrow it in a little bit more to how people should best prepare for it yeah yeah no that makes sense i mean that's the entire purpose of beta testing is right this is the idea did we hit the mark or is this was this way too easy like every beta tester scored at 95 percent it was too easy or is this the con side there you know everybody scored a 60 and holy cow what have we got on this do any of these people really know what they're doing mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this will certainly refine itself. And then eventually, yeah, there's definitely going to be a niche market for people to provide those same prep courses and study materials and things that are going to be out there. I think. Yeah, absolutely. I'm assuming the recertification cycle is going to look similar, right? Yeah, I think so. I'm probably not the authority on that aspect of the exam, but I would take an educated guess that's probably going to be consistent with um, the rest of IBSC's policies. Okay, awesome. Sean, anything else that you've got a burning desire to know? I don't know. I'm I short of just think. getting your hands on the, the pre-exam and studying that. Like, what else yeah. do you want to know, buddy? Yeah. No, I don't think there's too much more with the WPC exam. Like, I've got all my books and, I mean, this is what we do. So this is what I read about most of my time. And the rest of my, we'll call it urban paramedicine, tends to sometimes suffer for it. Yeah, you're pretty bad at that aspect of medicine. But you're yeah, pretty good I mean, on a mountain, so I'm not here to World's okayest paramedic. Yeah, you are the world's right. okayest paramedic, buddy. <laughs> no, I think... I, the only thing I'd ask is, you know, what do you think the next big thing in wilderness EMS is going to be? Or is it pushing technology down as it's getting smaller? So we're almost taking all those same things we have with the ambulance out into the field, which is right now very challenging. Like Mike and I, we're our own two-man agency and we don't get the budget. You know, we're not getting to take out some of the devices that are out there and available. So, so I think I can think of sort of three things that I think might be the next big things. The first is something along the lines of what you are talking about, which is, you know, I think pointing back to this sort of renaissance in combat medicine, tactical medicine that's occurred over the past decade or so, where there's this whole host of companies now that is, you know, they're all developing kind of really like customized products for that environment. And everything from different kinds of litters to different kinds of packs and modules and all kinds of stuff, you know, just for that community. And when you talk to combat medics from sort of the early days of the uh, war on terror, they're like, we didn't have any of this stuff. You know, you, um, I got a couple of friends who were like legit tier one operators kind of in the early days of that. And they're like, yeah, we were wearing like fishing vests as our like specialized yeah. battle rattle, you know, when the, when the issued stuff didn't work for us, you know, that kind of thing. And now there's just all these custom products. So I think as wilderness EMS kind of comes into its own as a real recognized specialty, you'll start to see that. And you know, of course, there are companies that are kind of marketing to that community right now. Conterra, you know, obviously has like oh, a yeah. whole line of just like medical packs, you know, and other companies too. But I'm not sure if there's always a clear distinction between the gear for search and rescue versus the gear for ALS providers. Right, so right. one of the frustrations for us on Red Star has been actually really difficult to find packs that allow you to carry in <laughs> appropriate ALS equipment plus personal sustainment items. Um, yeah. It's not really easy to find a lot of gear that really reflects like I'm doing more than just like first aid here. 
I'm carrying in like a range of medical gear. So we started with like a mystery ranch rat, a rats pack. That was, mm-hmm. that was the first yeah. pack that we tried out. And partially because we have a lot of guys on our roster who are uh, dust off medics and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So that's a pack that's like designed really well for March care. And it's yeah. not designed so well for sustained care over many, many hours. So we moved away from those. We tried the Conterra ALS Extreme Pack. Again, didn't quite work for us because not a whole lot of room there for things like a, a hydration bladder, right? It's like hard to fit a hydration bladder or a nouching in those pockets and stuff like that. And then um, just needed a little bit more, actually a little bit more organization in a little bit of a smaller frame, stuff like that. So great companies, right? Like Mystery Ranch is awesome. Conterra is awesome. But their stuff is not necessarily designed for the wilderness paramedic doing their thing with all the stuff that they need to carry. So we have gone, th- we still haven't found the perfect bag, right? Yeah. But I look over at these like tactical and combat medical oriented kinds of companies and they're like putting so much thought into like how, like where, like what should the loops be like sewn into the little pouch for the really specific things that like a wilderness, I'm sorry, a, a combat medic has to carry or like an 18 Delta is expected to carry. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think we're going to start to see that kind of like focus on the wilderness paramedic as things go forward in terms of gear. The second thing I think we're going to see is just a greater recognition of it as a real professional specialty that requires things from the rest of the healthcare system. So for example, right now, there's really no board certification for physicians in wilderness medicine. You can complete a fellowship in wilderness medicine, but there's no board certification. And it used to be that way for EMS as well. And and like technically, there's still not like a official board certification for EMS, but there's a subspecialty certification. All right. So I think you'll start to see that happen for wilderness emergency physicians who've completed a wilderness fellowship. I guess any physician, there's all kinds of specialties in the wilderness fellowship. But yeah, I think you'll start to see the wilderness fellowship sort of be reflected, hopefully, as leading to board specialty or subspecialty certification so that those physicians can provide more appropriate medical oversight, medical direction, that kind of stuff. And then I think the third thing is, I hope, this is harder to predict. I hope what we're going to just see is a broad recognition within EMS and within search and rescue that this really is a specialty. That just like Thames is a real specialty, like you'd be crazy to take somebody just off any old ambulance with any old standard EMS gear set and tell them, get in the stack and take care of anybody who gets hurt, right? Like people would be like, hopefully people would be like, that doesn't sound like a great idea. <laughs> like I'm thinking that they might need some specialized equipment, specialized training. Now, we all know that there are some people who really do think that Thames is just hop off the ambulance and get in the stack. But professionals in this space understand that. And honestly, I think most people understand you're probably going to need to take a specialized training course. You're probably going to need to learn a thing or two that's a little bit different. You're probably going to have to have some familiarity with firearms and uh, irritant chemical agents and things like that, right? Most yeah. people understand. I'm not sure that most people understand that about wilderness EMS right now. I think most people really do think you can pull up to the trailhead, grab your stat pack, and grab your iron duck oxygen duffel, <laughs> and we'll figure it out when we get there, right? Oh, and, yeah. and some of that is because of the way that the national EMS guidelines and curricula are written, right? Like, you do learn about dive medicine a little bit. You do learn about spider bites and venomations. You do learn about different kinds of wildlife injuries and stuff like that. And there's environment alone. It's all mixed in, reflecting this idea that EMS providers go to where the patient is and you know take the ER to the patient, all that kind of stuff. But that's not true. It's not any more true for the wilderness environment as it is for the tactical environment or any other kind of niche environment. So hopefully with WPC, I think we'll maybe start to see EMS really recognizing, yeah, we need like some special operations approaches to wilderness medicine in these different places. And on the SAR front, I got to say, love Wait, the here SAR to, Oh community. man, I can I, feel it coming. I can totally I feel it coming. I SAR community. Yep, yep, yep. I started in search and rescue myself. Yep. I started first in the Civil Air Patrol. As a teenager, for a brief moment in time, I was attending a Shenandoah Mountain Rescue Group meetings up in D.C. Uh, when I yeah. was in the area. Did you um, know that's where and, he and I met? Yep. And I used okay. to be on a search and rescue team here in Kentucky. I was the deputy chief of that search and rescue team here in Kentucky. Nothing but love for the SAR folks. And uh, we still support them You know, every day. We embed with search and rescue teams. There is, in my opinion, a widespread hubris 
in search and rescue writ large, <laughs> not throwing you know any shade in any particular team or any part of the country. There's a widespread hubris, I think, in search and rescue that first aid is sufficient and we'll just carry them out to the waiting ambulance. It's not, it's unfortunately not the case, my friends. First yeah. aid is absolutely crucial. It's absolutely life-saving. There's no question. Stopping the bleeding, splinting the broken bones, rescue breathing, CPR, right? First aid absolutely saves lives and that's awesome. But then what, right? There's a reason it's called first aid. <laughs> it's not definitive aid. It's the first <laughs> aid. And then there are tiers of care all the way through definitive care at like a tertiary or quaternary medical facility where there are specialists in what happened to that patient, be them toxicologists or trauma surgeons or you know whatever happened, right? So if we're going to have these specialists taking care of them in the hospital, we need to recognize that we need to start to bring that specialization to the patient in the field. So I hope that this catches on in the SAR community, but I still run into a lot of people from the SAR community who say, well, you know, the majority of care for these subjects is provided by first aiders. And I'm like, well, yeah, now. But like, yeah, today, that's, that's what yeah. they have. Because we don't that's have the nature have of the people. environment you're in, right? Well, well, also it's like, yeah, because this thing that we're talking about now is, you know, professional wilderness EMS providers is like, just now really starting to be recognized. So yeah. there was a time in this country where the only thing anybody got who was in a car accident or got sick or fell through the ice or whatever was first aid. And then we built a modern EMS system where there's people who specialize in pre-hospital care. That's where we need to go in search and rescue as well. And it doesn't mean yeah. that we're going to be excluding people who aren't healthcare professionals because that's, that's crazy. Right? Like There's never going to be enough wilderness EMS uh, professionals to staff every community, every jurisdiction, you know, with, with these resources is always going to be basically a tiered response model where the majority of the people who are doing the work out there, the ground pounders are first aid providers. They are going to reach the patient first. They are going to initiate the care, but there needs to be people who they can either request as a follow-on response or be embedded with them who really are subject matter experts in providing advanced life support in these environments. So we're very fortunate in the community that I work in Powell County, Kentucky. Red Star, which is really the wilderness special operations team of our county ambulance service, we are fully embedded with Powell County Search and Rescue. And it's a wonderful, wonderful partnership where, you know, when we respond, it's 20 search and rescue guys going out the door and typically one or two Red Star members embedded with them. They are expected to be the experts in rigging, evacuation, principles of technical rescue extrication, setting up the LVs, communicating with the helicopters, patient movement across a challenging terrain, uh, instant command, certainly searching and finding and locating people. When I embed with them, I'm expected to be the expert on patient care. Yeah, I need yeah. to be conversant in all of those disciplines. I need to understand what I'm doing. But if I could borrow from the military model a little bit, it's like I'm the medic who's attached to an infantry unit or a this unit or that unit, right? My specialty is the medic. I need to understand what the discipline is that I'm a part of so I don't like reveal our position or break equipment or do something like that. But that's really the model that we have in Powell County. It works really well. That's the model that I hope catches on you know, nationwide. And then in too many places, it doesn't exist right now. Yeah, no, and that's essentially how Mike and I function with with the folks that we support is, yeah. is they provide that largely, you know, they provide the incident command and the manpower and the folks. And we really focus on providing the, the paramedicine piece in yeah, the field, doing and, the work. And it's basically also how the National Park Service functions, kind of broadly speaking, right? Not every park has a real, you know, ALS program and stuff like that. But right, for the most part, it's like, we're going to rangers train to some EMS level are yep. going to go into the field and provide that care. So it's, uh, I think the thing is, it's just all too rare. And, and there's still this very predominant kind of mentality out there. They're like, search and rescue will find the person, they'll bring them out to a waiting ambulance. Yeah. Oh, yes. We got to do better than that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I think you can just take the model, remove the search and rescue from it for a minute, right? Like if you understand the history of EMS, like it really goes back to all the way back to the hearse shows up and you pitch him in the car and you hurry, hurry, hurry to the doctor place, right? Well, a modern, well-equipped, well-staffed, well-educated EMS system, right, brings a lot of those aspects of the emergency room to the patient. And at the end of the day, anaphylaxis and those things are no longer like, you got to hurry to the hospital because the doctor can, he's the only one that can do the things. Well, we're doing all of that in your home for you long before we ever get in the ambulance, but you need to go get checked out. They need to use the big machines in the building that you can't bring to the house yet. 
But at the end of the day, we're bring, this has been a continuum of a process in medicine on whole to bring the medicine to the patient for 30 plus years. And yeah. this and is just another extension we, of that. Yeah. One of the things that we struggled with kind of early on in my community when we first launched Red Star was the search and rescue teams were so used to EMS not being present and not being capable of operating in their environment that they had built all of their models and all of their protocols and all their approaches around us not being. And so the first thing we sort of had to help people understand was like, what is it that we're, what's the value of modifying all that stuff to now include us and reflect EMS care? And then sort of related to that was like making them feel comfortable that we're not going to screw things up. We're not going to like break their systems that they've built you know, over all these years. And a really good example of this is when the search and rescue team members started to see how much of a difference it makes in a smooth operation to medicate before you manipulate a broken ankle or a broken leg, people started getting excited about us really quickly. And it's no longer going to be a patient who, you know, is like howling at the top of their lungs and screaming and crying. And it's everybody, you know, it's like walking on eggshells trying to move this patient into the basket and all that kind of stuff. We can like hit them with that special K and solve that problem. And, <laughs> exactly. you know, but they still need to be splinted. They still need care. So the other thing that I would encourage wilderness EMS professionals to do is like involve those search and rescue team members in that care. Do your thing that only you can do and then let your care partners do the things that they can do. So we will get that vascular access and give them the analgesia. And then a search and rescue team member ought to be able to make a really nice splint. And that's important so that it's not like um, the wilderness paramedic coming in, just taking over the show. Make sure that everybody's involved in the, the care that they're able to give that patient. So anyway, that's what we started doing. So we, you know, we medicate the patient. They're making a good splint. By the way, it's also helpful that they can carry some splinting supplies and we can carry some splinting supplies and we don't have to carry all the splinting supplies. Okay. So again, sort of a little bit of that. It's almost like that combat philosophy of everybody carries an IFAC and you're going to use that stuff first, right? So we'll dip into those search and rescue first aid kits and stuff like that and use it. So, so that's one example of like, this is what we can bring to the table. This is how we can make your search and rescue operation easier and smoother. And uh, then, you know, we're also there for uh, SAR force protection. We're there for responder health. And we have treated search and rescue team members who have sprained ankles and gotten stung by bees and started having shortness of breath too. So they appreciate that as well. And once this stuff catches on, then I hope that more SAR teams and more communities start to see that value themselves. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we're banging up against an hour. David, quite frankly, everything you said, I want to say first, thank you. Thank you for... Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. I think long championing something that uh, Sean and I felt, well, it's been over a decade that we've felt very passionate about this and we've been putting in the work ourselves. I'm excited not only about the FPC, but about what you talked about earlier in that there's a lot of folks that I think the catalyst in that this exam finally got off the ground, I shouldn't say finally, got off the ground with the support of enough people that it not only is just the exam itself, but the linking of communities that are working in very similar ways that were not necessarily mm -hmm. collaborating before. And I yeah, know right. I'm walking away from this right now going, holy cow, like everything you said, right? Like everything you just said for the last 10 minutes, I'm thinking about, oh, I don't know, Sean, remember that one call where the lady fell and rolled all of her fingernails back? And at the time, you and I were not paramedics yet. And we looked at the guy on the ambulance and said, guess what, dog? Like, you're coming with us. You've got the tools that we don't have. And he kind of looked at us with, like we had three heads. And he was like, well, what, what, do you, what do you mean? Like, she's three miles down the, the trail. And one of the supervisors from the agency we were with looked at him and was like, yeah, and now you're walking. Like, that's kind of how this is going to work. And he's trying to carry EMS bags with a bunch of search and rescue guys into the woods to go do paramedicine for somebody that got themselves hurt pretty bad. It just, the skill set wasn't there to do that sort of work in the woods. And this has been a long time coming, I think. I think there's a lot of people that have been very focused on this individually in their own little regions of the world. But I think this is quite possibly going to be a catalyst for bringing a lot of best practices and things everyone else has figured out along the way, right? Every pack you named, by the way, Sean and I have owned at some point or another. We've had the same experience, <laughs> yeah. right? I think we go through... I'll say between three or four packs every two to three years, right? And then yeah. so eventually and, and we, we get together and like, we're like, oh, that one didn't work. Let me try this one. And I, then I go buy another I one and he buys another bad. one. Yeah, I sort of feel bad that I was like throwing some like excellent companies who've like really been great supporters of us like under the bus a little bit. But that's not really what I mean at all. It's just no. that 
it's we got to dial in some of the gear to like wilderness ems so like we use a lot of stuff that's designed for combat thames even because it's kind of the best we can find for what we need but it's not designed for us so like i mean honestly i sort of feel like an idiot uh, showing up on a trail with like a like spiritus microsystems you know chest rig that's designed to hold like (laughs) five five six mags but that's who's making the light fast easily donned easily doffed kind of equipment that's who's making it so that's what we're using but we need stuff like that for stuff like that for the civilian wilderness paramedic so a lot of great companies. You know, Contera is awesome. I love. Yeah. I, there's pro, you know, there's tons of products from them that I absolutely love. Love yeah, the Scarab. I have all of them. Yeah, love the Scarab as my oh, as yeah. my personal ascent device. Love their chest rigs. Got three of their gear bags in my truck right now. But you know, same thing with um, you know, like it's the last ten percent, right? It's yeah, that last ten percent like, where you put it together, and I need to carry like one last bag of fluid, but I need like a couple more of this or that. Yeah. And how do I fit yeah. all this together and still carry like a jacket and potentially a tarp and the ability to like make a shelter yeah. if I need to at night and yeah, all of exactly. my snivel gear, I and, need to hydrate too, you, right? I'll give you a really good example of this is like, you know what I don't really need on like a mystery ranch med bag. I don't need two or three external tourniquet loops <laughs> in the wilderness, right? Yeah, like yeah. I don't need that many, right? Because that's a bag. Their Mystery Ranch, the rats, is designed for combat, right? It's designed for combat. So that makes total sense, okay? You know what I do need? You know what would be awesome? How about uh, on my backpack strap right here? A Radio couple pouch. of little elastic loops. A couple <laughs> of little elastic loops where I could stash a couple of half-used prefills. Yes. yes. Right? I've mixed up my push dose epi or whatever, and I want yep. to stash it right here so that it's easy to take <laughs> on, easy to take off, right? Like, that's what I need. So their bag is amazing. Contera stuff is amazing. It's just that, and everybody else out there in the market as well, it's all amazing stuff. But there's this weird thing where it's like a lot of that stuff is designed either for the combat medic or it's designed for the SAR provider. And right here in the middle is just me, like civilian Dave, (laughs) who's not going into combat. I'm not dealing with a whole lot of gunshot wounds out here in the Red River Gorge. I'm not dealing with a lot of blast injuries. But I'm also carrying more than a standard kind of BLS loadout. Yeah. And nobody's really making gear for us. So that's what I hope happens as this kid catches on. Oh, man, I'll give you the perfect example, quite frankly. And uh, I think Sean has doubled down on this one as well. I spent, I don't know, 18 months or so buying various versions of dump pouches. Because you know what you need at the end of the day when you get in the woods and you mm-hmm. do some care? Somewhere to put your yeah. trash. Right. Yep. Right. I keep a dump pouch on my all of my harnesses and on our current packs that we're using on the belt. On the hip belt, we have uh, dump pouches for that. Yeah. Yep. yep. I actually yep. Uh, fashioned one to my chest rig so that I could pull it out and I just have a little trash can on the side, but I can take yeah. my pack off and take my things out and it's still there, right? Yep. That's, uh, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because it's actually one of the examples that I use sometimes of, you know, people like, okay, David, give me an example. What's, uh, what's something people don't think about out in the wilderness? And there's all kinds of examples you can give, but one of the simplest ones that almost never gets talked about is what are you doing with all your trash? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. What are you doing with all your trash? You're over the edge of a cliff. You're down there in like two feet of loam. <laughs> oh. What are you doing with your trash? And then what are you doing with the patient's belongings? Yep. You know, so having a dump pouch is something that's just super handy, super important. And then experienced CMS providers know sometimes when you're charting, you're reconstructing the care that you did based on the number of empty caps, empty yeah. open boxes, you know, all that kind <laughs> of stuff. Let me dig into my pocket oh, yeah, with the vials it. and make sure that I counted yeah. them properly oh, over got, time, yeah, right? I got, yep. Yeah, I got, I got two empty fentanyls. Okay, right. Okay, <laughs> so that is, yeah, that's really, that's a really good example of like, here's a little, a little hack. And again, like some of the bags that we've tried out that are marketed as sort of med bags from different companies. I'm like, I don't need this thing covered in Molly, but I do need like a couple of strips on the hip belt so that I can put a dump pouch and I can put a glove holder, you know, mm. little glove pouch. Like I just need a yeah. little bit. I don't need the whole thing covered. I could go on on about this. And, and, and I think it just all reflects the fact that this really is sort of a, it's we're at the beginning of this, what I think is going to be a renaissance. And I think you'll see some of the crow medicine you know companies like that that like have really pioneered the combat medic gear set they're going to start to branch out even more into the into the more you know wilderness oriented stuff at least that's my hope yeah i know that's great well i mean well (laughs) we just did a podcast not too long ago explicitly on charting right like just the differences in doing charting in the woods and do you use a pre-made notebook there isn't really a a really good pre-made notebook for extended care if you're taking blood pressures manually by the way Hint, hint, by the way, everybody that does not do wilderness medicine, like that's still a skill set you need. Like ain't no automatic life plaque 
sort of reliable map-based blood pressure tool out there yet that fits in a backpack that is light enough to take oh, with you and run for a contraire. while, right? That's I know you've true. got you've yeah. got the funds, my man, but I'm talking to all the little yeah. rural agencies out there that have well, well. Here's the other thing too. I'll make I'll make a quick point about this. Yeah, so we carry a a device that we really love called the Wireless Vital Signs Monitor from a company called Athena GTX, and it does do yep. um, oscillometric and IBP, and it's it's great and, and it does too. three lead and, and ecg uh, three lead ecg uh, spo2 mm -hmm. and we have a, a waveform uh cabinography module on as well so it's a great device and it does in fact fit in the back it fits in a cargo pocket and it's amazing mm -hmm. and batteries fail and electronic devices break if you drop them off cliffs and so on and so forth right so one of the things in wilderness mess and that i preach or in wilderness ems that i preach is anything you're carrying that is battery powered or electronic you need to have a analog manual backup device for so we still carry a blood pressure cuff we still carry a stethoscope we still carry a color metric device we carry uh, an emma as well so we carry the athena gtx with the end title we carry an emma why do we do that well it's because the emma is uh, alkaline battery powered so if our athena gtx runs out of juice we can always pop fresh bats into the emma also because we have multiple patient care scenarios so we do historically in the gorge every couple of years, we got like a lot of people who all fall off the same cliff, all get into the same basket of trouble. Okay, so we're carrying it for that reason. And then I tuck a, a color metric device in as well, because if my alkaline batteries fail for whatever reason, if it's too cold or something like that. Now, some people actually think that that's kind of crazy. Like I've had some people tell me they're like, bro, you're not getting this like light and fast. And I'm like, ah, I just kind of disagree. Like, how much more does the color metric device weigh? Nothing. Yeah, it weighs right. nothing. And if my battery devices fail, I still have some basic rudimentary, not amazing, but basic rudimentary uh, entitled uh, CO2 uh, confirmation device. So, yeah, um, there are some amazing technologies out there that are super light and fast, but you got to be carrying the, the backups that don't rely on electricity and aren't fragile. Yeah. So... We've always yeah, kind of operated under the mantra of you can, I mean, you can go as light and fast as you want, but if it's going to take you 45, 50 minutes to hike into that person, right? A cardiac arrest 50 minutes down the trail is otherwise known as a recovery, right? That's just kind yeah. of the nature of the beast. So saving five or six minutes, but then being behind the curve when you've got a six, seven, eight hour extrication, it just doesn't make sense, yep. right? You have to come prepared yep. for the extended care because you're in an extended care environment. And if you yep. carry a little more stuff and it takes five more minutes, that's just the name of the game, right? You got to come ready. Well, and the other thing that we kind of embraced on our team at various points, we were like, you know, these packs are a little heavy, you know, <laughs> they're not crazy heavy, but they're a little heavy. We need to get lighter. We need to get sleeker. We need to get faster. And we kind of reached a certain point where we're like, no, we're, we're actually not carrying enough to be doing the professional level healthcare that we want and need to be doing in the woods. So what does this actually mean? It actually means we need to get stronger. We need mm -hmm. to get more physically fit to carry what we need to be carrying once we decide that that's what we carry. So there's a certain point where it's like, we're not like AT through hikers, right? We're not like trying to like squeeze out half the toothpaste tube because every, you know, ounces equals pounds and all that kind of stuff. Like we're going to bring what is necessary for this patient. And so, yeah, we need to like examine our physical fitness standards and, and get a little bit stronger and stuff like that. So I, I really do hope that uh, we start to see a little bit more uh, development on this front. And uh, I think we are. That WBSM, for example, was originally marketed to two primary audiences. The first was combat uh, applications. And then the second was uh, MCI applications, like using it on yep. like an AMBU bus or at a casualty collection point. We have really enjoyed our devices and we try to kind of popularize them a little bit. We receive no benefits from the company whatsoever. There's no conflict of interest. We just have found this tool that's really great and we've shared it with other people. They have acquired it. And I would like to think that that would mean that that company now is going to be responsive to a little bit of R&D feedback from the wilderness community. And maybe that thing will get even lighter, even smaller. Maybe they'll release a, a version that allows you to pop in alkaline batteries if you wanted to. Stuff like that. I think that yeah. be, you know, that's that's where I really hope that this goes in the future as being a WPC becomes as as understood as being an FPC. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah some of that gear, like the WVSM, it's like that thing is amazing. Love yeah, to cool. have one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, one of the aside from price, you know, it's that the kind of short battery life. It's a rechargeable device. Mm -hmm. So well, the you battery know, life is good. The battery life is good. The battery life is generally about eight to 12 hours. Well, um, but nevertheless, 
at some point is going to run out. So I've well, been yeah. on a couple of rescues where it ran out and we were just out there a hell of a long time for reasons. And, you know, I, yeah. I don't know, maybe in a future episode, I can break down, you know, calls like that. We can get into reasons. But I was out there for 10 hours cycling a lot of blood pressures. Let me put yeah. it that way. And yeah, we ran out of batteries. So yeah, it happens. Yeah, no, it's like, I think the longest rescue Mike and I have been on is about 18 hours. We had to overnight with yeah, a couple of patients exactly. before, yeah. you know, and so, mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, no, some great devices out there. Yeah. And I'm just looking forward to them. That technology come down, price points coming down and getting it. Yeah. People recognize the wilderness piece and start to think about that and market towards that as well. Right. Yep. That'll be good. Well, we're at about an hour and 15 minutes. So I think we're going to call this a wrap. I have a funny feeling in my heart that David will be joining us along with perhaps Doc Collins and some others from the community. We can potentially get a groundswell going because I think there is a lot of experience amongst those of us that are doing some podcasts. I look forward to uh, having some more conversations and sharing knowledge because I think this is an exciting time for the community to start the groundswell and learn from each other. Right? There's things that David has, has expressed to me that I did not know existed in the market. And just quite frankly, in the environment Sean and I operate in, like an, an eight to 12 hour extrication is a norm. Like that is a baseline when we go out, we expect to be out for 12 plus hours in some of the environments we work in, right? And you have to change your mindset. And if there are folks that want to learn more or learn from that, I'd be happy to, to touch base with anyone. So uh, if anybody is listening and wants to, to bounce ideas off, feel free to reach out to us. We can also help get you guys in touch with other folks. Or if, if you're part of the community and you're listening and you have some, some great feedback as well, we'd love to hear it because I think this is, well... This is one of the most exciting conversations I've had in a long time around wilderness medicine. I'd, I'd like to continue <laughs> it with a bigger community. So uh, with that, everybody. I thought you were going to say one of the most exciting conversations you've had. I was going to say, you, you got to meet more people. Uh, <laughs> just, I'm a nerd, but it's been a pleasure to talk with you guys today. So thanks for having me. No, we were very happy to have you. It's great. Yeah. All right, gang. Well, with that, we're going to call it a wrap. Thanks again for the three of you that are listening to us. I think we're up to like an average of like seven people that download this and four of them are from Finland. So hopefully we'll, <laughs> we'll grow that groundswell as well and continue to do what we do and, and folks will, will get the word out. So, all right, everybody, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you later. If you have any questions or comments or ideas for show topics, you can send us an email at the show at emsonthemountain.com or hit us up on social media. We can be found on Facebook and Instagram at EMS on the Mountain, Twitter at EMSOTM, you can engage with us and a whole community of wilderness EMS professionals at locals.com slash wilderness EMS. Until the next episode, thanks for joining us. And until we see you on the mountain, train hard, be safe, and do good work.